Hi, de ho, all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. As this is volume two of our Tarantino discussion, expect to hear some language some might find offensive. Second, be sure to hop on over to Muse Storytelling by Still Motion and check out their new How to Conduct Remarkable Interviews course. The first 50 people who sign up with the offer code interview get $48 off. Scene one, take 10, marker. Action! Previously on Radio Film School. I think that right now, which will be might sound crazy coming out of my mouth because I'm itinerantly more progressive. The climate in our culture is way too politically incorrect or politically correct. So that when people say things, they're, they're quickly labeled as a racist, this or that or whatever. And I, I, I think that like when you look at comedians or artists or filmmakers, I'm not saying, oh, it should just be uh, open season on using the word nigga. You know, everybody can say it whenever and however. Sometimes comedians you like might cross the line. But, you know, I kind of feel in a lot of ways that's a comedian's job is to kind of walk right up to that line and kind of find out where the we, we won't know where the line's at unless they cross it. To go back to your question about um, injecting something for provocation's sake solely right, versus to serve your artistic endeavor, if it's solely just to create controversy, then I'm not in favor of that unless there's some kind of social agenda attached with that. If someone is trying to inject, you know, some kind of provocative subject matter into their artistic expression, if that's in conjunction with serving the story and also, you know, creating, you know, public discourse, then I think that's a good thing. Those clips were from a special bonus episode we did a few weeks ago with show regulars J.D. and Yolanda Cochran. Now, in case you're new to the show, J.D. and Yolanda are both African-American and have extensive experience in the movie-making business. I found that all three of us had very interesting takes on the topic of the N-word. But that's how these things go, don't they? We're all shaped by our individual experiences as men and women and people of varying racial backgrounds. We're all moved by art in different ways because of these backgrounds. And when art is particularly provocative, more so than it may be normally, we react strongly. Well, there are a few filmmakers today who are as provocative as Quentin Tarantino, creating films that elicited a whole range of emotion and reactions from his audiences. In our last Filmmaker's Journey episode two weeks ago, we looked at Tarantino the auteur, how he as an artist distinguishes his style. This week, we're looking at Tarantino the Provocateur. From his clever, if not controversial, dialogue to his over-the-top violence, he's a filmmaker whose work is a paragon of provocation. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School, A Filmmaker's Journey. Worldwide were first introduced to Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, 
let me see if he's on the line, but it was Pulp Fiction that won him an Oscar and launched him into this A-list status he's in. Some people say he's all about style over substance. Some people say he's glamorized violence. Some people say he's a genius. His latest movie, Kill Bill, is a tale of a former assassin's quest for revenge. It stars Uma Thurman and Lucy Liu. Shortly after Kill Bill Volume 1 opened, Tarantino appeared on a San Francisco Bay Area morning news program where he was interviewed by the show's movie critic Jan Wall. This here is a clip from that now infamous exchange. Let's just say Jan was rather in shock when Tarantino actually suggested that Kill Bill was a movie cool parents should take their children go see. Cool parents, really. Quentin, would you say this movie teaches girls to be empowered by being violent and vicious, just like boys in the movie? Would you uh, say it, that's the it empowerment? Teaches, it, it, it empowers women, by, it empowers girls by the fact that Uma Thurman is a female warrior. She's uh -huh. a female avenger. Right. right. Revenge is like one of the classic staples in drama. I see a lot of innocent story, people. Right? I've seen the and film. And to have question. girls not be the the uh, uh, not only the girlfriends in mm -hmm. movies, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, this is a movie about women. They're not about cute girls no, going it's about killer women. All right, with their it's butts and women. their uh, uh, t-shirts to stop before mm -hmm. below their uh, b uh, before their uh, belly button, mm -hmm. asking permission to kick ass. Right. These girls just kick ass. They're right. warriors. They live by a code of honor, and they die by that code of honor too. And they and innocent people die along the way. It's about that kind of thing. Now tell me this. You know, innocent people die along the way because that's unfortunately that's the story of revenge. Revenge is okay. messy. It never works out the way you want it. Why? The need for so much gruesome graphic violence. Why not let us imagine? Because it's so it? much fun, Jan. Get really? it? We're getting the hook. You're doing well, obviously. You're laughing all the way to the bank, and I know some people are I'm having a great time making a terrific movie that people are having fun seeing. Maybe not you, but you know what, Jan? I don't think I made it for you. Quentin, Quentin, Quentin. He was saying provocative stuff back then, and he's still going strong. But I have to hand it to him. He makes some good points. Revenge is messy. It doesn't always go the way you want. And frankly, as someone who personally thinks women are way over-sexualized in cinema and media in general, I like the fact that Uma, Lucy, Vivica Fox, and Gerald Hanna's characters A. keep their clothes on, and B. are total badasses that you don't want to mess with. In fact, Quite a few men who would otherwise have their way with these women in this movie find out all too quickly they mess with the wrong women. Or in the case of the animated short that tells the story of Lucy Liu's character, the wrong girl. The violence in Kill Bill is excessive, but it's almost cartoon-like. The over-dramatized blood squirting, the hacking off of limbs, the plucking out of eyeballs is all done in a way that is so over the top you can't really take it too seriously. Or maybe you can. As a female, um, it, it, it's very visceral and difficult to watch the position that women are in. Um, and like the killing in that scene. I mean, all of that. It just, it bothered me. That's Lydia Hurlbut, CEO of Hurlbut Visuals, the production and filmmaking education company of ASC cinematographer Shane Hurlbut. Lydia and I had a discussion about Tarantino's latest film, The Hateful Eight and the controversy over how women were treated in that film, most notably Jennifer Jason Lee, But also, the gruesome violence. And it stayed with me, and I, I actually had to recover after seeing the movie. And I saw it with Shane. I was in an incredible, it was incredible sound and amazing screen, so that made it even worse, right? Because it just, you know, it had all of the sound just pumping out. So right. it shows you 
how incredible he is as a filmmaker in terms of, you know, um, I think where he takes the story and just getting that reaction out of the audience member. And you, you kind of have to gear up, you know, when you go to see his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the greatest compliment that I could give because honestly, you know, you, you just feel so intensely, or at least I did. What were your thoughts on how the Jennifer Jason Lee character was treated in that film? I mean, that's one of the things that's come up in terms of... I know. It bothered me so much. What uh, bothered you? What people are saying or how she was treated? I think it was how she was treated. And that, mm-hmm. that really shows you what an amazing job she did. Mm-hmm. Right? But the 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 punching and the... It was very hard to watch because it was so shocking. Do you feel like it was misogynistic? You know, I it's so hard to say because I honestly don't believe that that's his intention when he writes something. I think there's a there's a, and again, I don't know him, I don't know Quentin Tarantino personally well. So it's very difficult to give an opinion. I mean, I feel like if you could sit down and talk to him and really understand what's in his brain in terms of when he's figuring out these characters, that would be incredibly helpful, right? Sure. Um, I, I think it is, you know, there's so many angles and ways that you could look at it, right? And mm-hmm. so I wouldn't say that that would be my first response. Yeah. I think if a movie reflects the times of, of its, you know, the context of, it, of the story. Yes. Um, and obviously women back in that time were, were treated differently. But even like even the context of that story, like the way she was punched and how she was punched and why she was punched, like I didn't get I didn't like to me, I didn't get the message was it was okay to beat women or I didn't get the message was no. it was degrading to women. I got the message that the actually the message I got based on her response to being hit was almost like and this is going to, uh, I'm trying to say how to say this. Not that she wanted it, but like she knew it was coming. Like she had been with that character long enough to know that her mouth was going to get her hit. And she already had a black eye when we first right. see her. So we, her. so we know that she knows that if she talks, she's getting hit, but she does it anyway. And I almost think it is uh, a testament to her manipulation and power and whatnot that she was riling him up in such a way that she was allowing herself to be hit. Um, and like, I don't want this at all to come across like, no, okay I to understand women. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I understand what you're saying. And I think it was more of a, there's nothing that you can do to me that is going to decrease my power. So bring it on. Exactly. Exactly. You know, as a woman, um, your take on how he has portrayed women in his films. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this uh, before we started talking, and... Here's Clark Wolf. Clark's been on the show a few times. She's a movie review pundit, actress, film school graduate, and YouTube personality in the movie and pop culture review space, and has been seen on such shows as Collider Movie Talk, The Pop Fix, and Clever Movies. I think that each one of the characters that he creates are 
they're they're very specific. So so basically, you know, you watch uh, Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. There's no women in that movie, <laughs> you know. Right. And so so one could easily go, oh well, there's no women. You know, where's the representation? Um, I don't even think are there people of color in that movie? Yeah. So and there's actually there's there's a woman too. The woman who shoots um, Tim Ross character is a woman. Yes. Who, yes. I think I remember reading somewhere that was actually at the time Quentin's girlfriend. I don't remember. But anyway, um, that's a woman. And then the 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 officer who is teaching Tim Roth how to tell right. an anecdote, he's black. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, yes. So so and I would argue his character is much more memorable than hers because I was Oh just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. I just No, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But in terms of the people that you remember, you know, right. clearly there's, you're there's, thinking of the the guys right exactly um mr pink in the friends exactly but what i would say is like you know for me i think of um you know beatrix kiddo in kill bill i mean Mm -hmm. that's you know to me parts one and two um i because i don't really separate them in my head if that makes sense but um but you know that character is so different than um than daryl hannah's character Mm -hmm. and one is not better than the other i think that what it is is those two women it using that example are so distinct so it's like it's not about saying Oh well, I need. To, she's a woman, and I need to do this, this, and this for her. No, these are these are gray characters. They're not black and white. They're not all bad. They're not all good. And um, and you know, with Jennifer Jason Lee's character in The Hateful Eight, uh, I I found myself really not liking her as a character. But at the same time, I loved how gnarly and nasty and stupid and aggressive and just this this is a real character do you know when, what i mean yeah when you say you didn't like her meaning you didn't like that character the character not the performance the character okay got it like like well she was not supposed to be likable exactly got that's it, got yes it. Right, that's right. yes so so basically if that was his intention then it absolutely worked um but i but i loved as a woman see my thing is yes I think it's very, I'm all, I'm a big champion for representation, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of, in terms of people of color and and ethnic backgrounds. I think that's very, very important. Um, But speaking on, you know, speaking as a woman who, who, who really that is important to, um, I think it's just as important to have unlikable female characters because that means that we are as women, I think being treated equally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. And I mean, when I think about all his movies that have, that I've seen that have, you know, prime have main female characters, even Uman Thurman's character and, um, uh, Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. or and then obviously you know her character in Kill Bill, Jackie Brown, um, the Jennifer Jason Lee character. You know you're right; she's unlikable, but she's smart. She's conniving. Um, you know her little speech at the end really shows that she has a command of her environment and the people who follow her and. And uh, and then the I don't remember her name, but the character from Inglorious Bastards. Yes, you know, that's the a huge one. I mean, so when I think about like all the women he's created, you know, they have I mean, they have presence, they have power, they have, and like you said, they're not they're not stereotypes, they're not 
black and white, they are gray. And it's almost hard for me to conceive of someone like having an issue with the way he portrays women in his films. Like from what you, like what is the issue? Like, is it how they're treated? Like, I don't, I don't, I just don't see him as a filmmaker who portrays women in a negative light. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily see much to that argument either. I'm sure there is an argument to be made, but in my own personal opinion, when I think of issues people may have with Quentin Tarantino movies, yeah. um, you know, I would much more think of uh, it's a more logical case to discuss, you know, um, the portrayal of African Americans. And you've already brought this up the yeah, um, the, the use of the N word exactly. So, so to me, I mean that that I could see the conversation um, yeah. having some substance. But in terms of women, you know, I just feel like over the course of his body of work, I find most of his female characters um, to be to be pretty impressive. Actually, Bill's last bullet put me in a coma. A coma I was to lie in for four years. When I woke up, I went on what the movie advertisements refer to as a roaring rampage of revenge. I roared, and I rampaged, and I got bloody satisfaction. I've killed a hell of a lot of people to get to this point. Before we dive back into our discussions of Tarantino and the Provocateur, I wanted to remind you about Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. Now, a few months ago, I spoke with Patrick Moreau. He's the co-founder of Still Motion, and he's essentially their lead storyteller. And we were talking about their decision to close down their popular educational blog, stillmotionblog.com, and focus all of their energy on learnstory.org. I would say that we have incredible clarity on exactly where we're going, and we know that like the idea of giving people a, a blueprint for story and really just the science of human connection, which is the whole Muse process, it is, it's just been unbelievable how it has empowered people. Last week we went to Apple. We taught, mm -hmm. taught the lead creative directors, Muse, and they loved it. You know, So like we're, we're really making some powerful connections, and we know that this idea and structure um, has much more to offer than all of the other things that we've done on the, the still motion side and the other little, the wedding DVDs and different things, which mm -hmm. not that they don't have value, but they don't have the same structure and evergreen nature that they can really change your entire trajectory. As you can see, or rather here, Patrick and the team at Still Motion are throwing quite a number of their proverbial eggs into this storytelling basket. If you want to learn more about this process that impressed the top creative directors at Apple and contributed to Still Motion winning five Emmys for their work, head on over to learnstory.org. Use the offer code RADIO to sign up for any of their main tracks, wedding, corporate, or documentary filmmaking, and you'll get $47 off their lifetime access. More than how he has or hasn't treated women in his films, even more than the violence perhaps, Tarantino's use of the N-word is perhaps the most provocative aspect of his work, and it's definitely the one that probably gets talked about the most, especially with his recent release of The Hateful Eight. 
But the dialogue really started to kick up with the release of his last film, his seventh film, Django Unchained. And he just told me to man up. He told you to sit, he told you to man up. Told me to man up because, you know, it sounds like you're just afraid of your own movie and you can't make your movie if you're afraid of that. Yeah. This is a clip from Tarantino's interview on the popular syndicated Sirius FM radio show, Sway in the Morning. He's being asked by the host, Sway, about the controversy surrounding the use of the N-word in Django Unchained. Um, you know, it's like everyone knows what time it is. You know, he was mm-hmm. in a movie called Band of Angels where yeah. he played a slave with Clark Gable mm-hmm. and Yvonne DiCarlo. And that's, you know, uh, after a, a, a Gone with the Wind, it's one of the biggest uh, uh, slave movies made in Hollywood. Yeah. And he goes, you know, everyone knows what you're doing. Everyone, we're all professionals. Everyone's there. And by the way, if you're going to be shooting in Louisiana, there's a lot of poor motherfuckers there, man. They need that money. And so they you, need that time. And they, and they need to be able to tell the story of their own history. Wow. So you hired uh, locals, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. They played a ro- role of slaves. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that makes you a modern-day slave master. <laughs> no, Wait, no, 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 no. Oh, okay, I'm Even when Tarantino's not directing a film, but it's just the writer, one, you know it's Tarantino dialogue when you hear it, and two, there's a good chance that there will be something said that may make you equally laugh and squirm in discomfort. Here's a clip from 1993's True Romance, written by Tarantino but directed by Tony Scott. You're Sicilian, huh? Sicilian. <laughs> As a no. filmmaker and storyteller, I love the layers that are happening in this scene. I read a lot. Christopher Walken plays Sicilian mob boss Vincenzo Cocati who has captured Dennis Hopper's Clifford Worley and is trying to find the location of Hopper's son, Clarence, played by Christian Slater. Knowing he's probably going to die anyway, Hopper just provokes Walken. Sicilians were spawned by niggas. Come again? (laughs) It's a fact, yeah. You see, uh, Sicilians have uh, black blood pumping through their hearts. And, and no, if you, if, you, if you don't believe me, uh, you can look it up. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, you see, uh, the Moors conquered Sicily. And the Moors are niggers. Yes. So you see, way back then, uh, Sicilians were like uh, wops from northern Italy. Uh, they all had blonde hair and blue eyes. But... Uh, well, then the Moors moved in there and, uh, well, they changed the whole country. They did so much f- with Sicilian women, huh, that they changed the whole bloodline forever. That's why blonde hair and blue eyes became black hair and dark skin. The you know, scene is classic Tarantino. There's a slow tension build as the predator plays with his prey before the inevitable pounce. You see a similar dialogue style in many of Tarantino's films. The air scene in Reservoir Dogs, the Ezekiel 2517 scene in Pulp Fiction, the opening table scene in the Inglorious Bastards film, even the opening fight scene between Vivica Fox's Vernita Green and Uma Thurman's A Bride starts with a slow, tense build as we wait for the fuse to ignite. The tension in this true romance scene is escalated as we see Walken's character start to laugh as Hopper tells this insulting history lesson. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. And. What's he going to do? When's he going to do it? Will we see it on the screen? All of this adds to the texture and layer of the scene. But then there's that other side of the scene. The use of the N-word. If that's a fact, 
Tell me, am I lying? One could argue that for this scene, that is exactly the word Hopper's character should be using. And not because Hopper's character is a racist, but because we know intuitively that Walken's character most likely does look at black people like the N-word, and Hopper, knowing that, makes his insults all the more biting. I mean, come on, let's be honest. The scene nor the insult would have as much punch if he said, Sicily was conquered by the Moors, and the Moors were of African descent. That would just sound like a sterile history lesson. Hopper's character, knowing he's going to die anyway, wants to go out with a bang. And so he does. Quite literally. (laughs) I haven't killed anybody since 1984. But here's the thing. Does my explanation for why Hopper's character used the N-word make you feel any better? Isn't there still that lingering feeling that he didn't necessarily have to go there? Oh man, this place is bugging me, man. It's wigging me already. Let's cut out of this hole. Hey man, let's cut this jazz. The cat with the books is bugged out. Let's rock. Even though we addressed this topic a little bit a couple of months ago in that bonus episode I referenced at the top of the show... I thought music video director and show regular Isaac Dietz had an interesting take on Tarantino's use of the N-word. I grew up homeschooled and I saw my homeschool friends like, Mm -hmm. like realize that they're allowed to swear. And when they do... Just they would try and find different ways to throw a swear word in anytime they could. And it was the most like forced, overdone use of any swear words. And I feel like Tarantino tried out the N word and was like, oh, people didn't have a problem with this. And now he's like, like, realized he could do it. And then he, now he's like overdoing it, I think. Um, Well, I saw an interview with him shortly after, I think it was after Pulp Fiction came out, where he was saying he wanted to use that word in order to take power away from it. Oh. Hmm. Now, I'm curious of what you think, because honestly, as much as I probably have opinions on anything, like, I don't have any dogs in this race, like, personally. Sure. But then also, like... This conversation doesn't affect me at the end of the day. It's just, right. it's a theory, but like for you, it's personal. Yeah. You know, in general, I think the characters where he, who use that term, and I think for the most part are the kind of people who would use that term. Um, I do think he uses it in times where he doesn't need to use it. Yeah. Um, and I think he does that to be provocative. I think watching Hateful Eight was the first time where. I spermed a little bit where the audience was laughing at when that word was dropped. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, for me as an African-American, like, I don't think he's racist. I don't get oh, I, overtly I never... offended when he when he uses it. Sometimes it makes me squirm. But I think as a filmmaker, that's what he's trying to do. Sure. And um, I don't see him as racist right. either. Yeah. I think he might be irresponsible. <laughs> that's good, um, yeah. If you're trying to take power away from it, like people the past 30 years using it in rap songs and movies and stuff like that, I don't know if that's really taken any power away from it. And to me, the word does have power. 
to delude that almost would be like to delude history because if like, so let's say my kids hear that word and it's very powerless. It's like another word. And then they go back and they look at history and they see like slave owners saying those words. And then they'd be like, oh, well, that slave owner wasn't a bad guy. Like he wasn't saying anything powerful. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Um, to me, it's a powerful word. And I'm not, what I would like to do is like kind of, I think something to, to understand the power of anything is responsibility. And I think that if you take from, from something like alcohol to weapons to uh, food to sex and you go, this is a powerful thing. And if I don't use it the way it was supposed to be used or realize that I'm not supposed to use it, um, I don't want to, like, if you have a ton of sex, like, you have sex with a different person every couple hours, I don't know if it's going to, it probably will lose power. But also, I, I think it won't, I think it'll actually keep the same power, but I think it'll just make it, you won't react to it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you hear the N word like a thousand times, then the then the one thousand and one times, it's not going to make you cringe anymore. But maybe we should cringe at that word. Power to the ones whose minds explode. Power to the road of the soul ride zone. Power to the trees. Power to the breeze. Power to the season when your greed is the need. Maybe things are supposed to keep their power. But then we realize, okay, this is a gun here, and this has a lot of power. So either don't use it because you're just a kid, or if you're using it, know why you're using it. Use it correctly, and use it very respectfully. Um, and I feel like the same with the N-word. It's like, okay, I'm a white guy. I'm not going to say that word. Hmm. Like, I'm, I don't have that ability to do that. Um, so, but then there might be somebody where it's like, okay, you can use that word, but then I would also say to you, just understand its power and don't use it as loosely as people have been using it. And, and, and with anything with power, just understand its power so you can use it well. By the way, I've seen him speak about this argument and and I've seen him, you know, talk about this and I have a problem with it because I think that. You know, whenever you give somebody access to something, you are basically telling them that they have carte blanche to use it. That's Richard Bato, also known as RB to his friends. He's the founder and CEO of Stage 32, perhaps the largest social media and networking platform for professionals in the film and television industry. With over half a million users, Forbes magazine calls it Lynda.com meets LinkedIn for film, television, and stage creatives. In this clip from my interview with R.B., he's sharing his thoughts on Tarantino's claim that he's trying to take power away from the N-word by using it as much as he does. So I think the more something is accessible, the more that it's in the mainstream, uh, the more that people uh, hear or see or whatever, the more that they, the more that they think it's okay. 
And I think that that's the other side of that argument. I'll take this lightly maybe, but as a mature adult mm-hmm. and kind of sit there through a movie like The Hateful Eight and hear that word over and over and over again and almost take it at this point, you know, ten, eight films into his career, right. as sort of like a cartoonish sort of Tarantino sitting as – I could just picture him as typewriter like, you know – grinning maniacally, you know, going, oh, N-word, 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 you know, and, and, and right. you know, you feel it when you're sitting in the theater, you just kind of go like, oh my God, like, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, how many more times, how many more times, but if you're a 15 year old kid, you know, and you get your hands on it and, you know, is that acceptable? You know, is it, is it going to be acceptable for me as a 15 year old kid? Is it, you know, I'm hearing it so many times and I know the writer is white. You know, is that okay for me to go out and and use this word? And of of course, the answer is no. But how do how does a fifteen year old know that? And I think that that's the dangerous part of that, or the you know certainly the other side of it, but also the dangerous um, uh, counter to that to that argument. You know that that it's it's taking away the power. And and in my opinion, it could be very empowering. I think it just depends on the maturity and the the it could you know in a lot of ways it also depends on the geography of the person. You know, where the person grows up, how they grow up, you know, it depends on economic, you know, stature and, 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 uh, factors, you know, there's so many different things that play into that. So that's kind of a broad brush thing for me. And and I don't necessarily agree with it. No white director works with African-American actors the way Tarantino does. That's David Griffin another movie and television journalist for Screen Rant and co-host of the YouTube movie and television review shows respectively Think Hero and Collider TV Talk. Nobody else gives African-American actors that chance outside of a movie about slavery or anything else. I mean, you see Samuel Jackson is incredible, but I think he does everything so effortlessly that he won't get nominated for an Academy Award for a Tarantino film, but I think he deserved a nomination um, uh, for his role in The Hateful Eight, but I think I don't know, Samuel L. Jackson, I think when we watch him, it's just like, oh, that's just Samuel L. Jackson being Samuel L. Jackson. He's just doing it, doing what he does. But uh, trying to get, get back on topic, no, I, I think Tarantino's uh, masterful at what he does. He's not perfect. Uh, no filmmaker is, but I, I, I will sit there for three hours and go on a ride with Quentin Tarantino. Because Quentin, as much as he, he loves, uh, you know, African-American culture, he's not, he, he didn't grow, it's not his reality necessarily. Exactly. You know, yeah. as a youngster, he didn't grow up in that environment. So it's, uh, but, I mean, I just think it's incredible that all these actors still work with him. I mean, you know, Spike has come out and, you know, got on him after Django came out. But, I mean, look who's – but I think Sam, Sam Jackson took Quentin's side. I mean, I'm sure he's still – you know, you see Sam Jackson and Spike doing these commercials with Charles Barkley on TV. So I'm sure they're still all friends. But, I mean, you see that – you know, I love like when Django, the story of Leo not wanting to do the movie. He didn't want to do it. He said he, he, he couldn't do a role like that. And then Jamie Foxx and Sam Jackson both came up to Leo and convinced him, like, you have to do this movie. You have to do it. And he did. I love the stories of how Leo on set, I guess, uh, Jamie would come up to him and be like, hey, Leo, man, what's happening? What's going on? And, and Leo said he just he, he couldn't talk to him. He had to treat him. He had to see him as less than a human to do that role. He really had to get into it. And he couldn't talk to Jamie on set. He couldn't be friendly with him. And uh, it's just incredible that all these actors, both black and white, will do these movies with Tarantino and they trust him. And I think that that that, that, that speaks volumes. I got my armor back on, my dignity. When I look at somebody like Samuel L. Jackson, 
coming back again and again and again and defending him. Here's RB again. I don't know what goes on in those conversations. All I know is that Samuel Jackson comes back and wants to work with him time and time again. Right. Um, you know, other uh, African-American actors have defended him to the wall. Um, I just haven't enjoyed the last couple of movies, to be, you know, to be blunt. I just mm-hmm. think that it's been a little bit over the top, you know. But, you know, I mean – this is the this is sort of the brand that he's created for himself. I maybe he feels that if he goes another way, people are going to think that he's bowing to pressure. I don't I don't know. I don't know what goes on in his head. You know, he is what he is, and again, it's up to us as you know consumers of art to decide whether we want to take it in or not. I feel that Tarantino is provocative. Sure, for sure. Certainly. Here's Hurlbut Visual CEO again, Lydia Hurlbut. And that's why you have such intense reaction from people. Because you were provoking them to a point of being disturbed. And then we can all watch the same thing and have incredibly different ways that we interpret it based on our background, based on the way that our lives have unfolded. And so I think it, I would say for Tarantino, it really depends on the person viewing it and their life experience in terms of how they interpret what the visuals that he has on the screen in the story. I think Lydia's comment puts the whole conversation into an important perspective every artist must consider. You cannot control how a person will react to your art. Sure, you can infuse elements that you know will elicit a certain response. If you're a horror filmmaker, you can add the proverbial jump scares. If you're a rom-com filmmaker, you know all the story and act beats necessary to make us feel and root for the two lovers to hit it off. But ultimately, the response to your art is still out of your hands, regardless of what you write or what you shoot. And that's the same for all kind of artists, whether you're on Maplethorpe taking photos of sexually explicit nudes, or if you're NWA singing F the Police, or if you're Quentin Tarantino and using the N-word 113 times in your movie. People's responses to that art will be shaped by circumstances and situations far beyond your control. All you can do is make the art you want to make, put it out into the world, and good or bad, accept the consequences that befall you. After all, isn't that what it means to be an artist? My fellow filmmaker podcaster Alex Ferrari of the Indie Film Hustle podcast put it like this when I interviewed him for the show. The biggest thing about these directors is they have such a clear voice, such a clear perspective on who they are. And that essence of who they are spills onto their art. And that's what a great artist is, is someone who's able to express who they are through their art in a very clear way, a very clear, precise way, that there is no arguing that a Chris Nolan movie is a Chris Nolan movie. You can see a Chris Nolan movie and see it. Some have it so much more clearly than others, like a Tarantino film. The second someone opens their mouth, you know it's a Tarantino film. Mm -hmm. And there is no other guy writing like Tarantino in this generation or arguably in the next. I'll leave you with this clip from Tarantino being interviewed by Jamal Finkley of Black Tree TV during the Django Unchained press junket. 
Before we go, last, last question. Um, you, you've taken the liberty of using the, nigger, the word nigger in a lot of pictures. I think it's, it's, you use it like truthfully in, in the script. But what gave you the what gave you the courage to do so? I, I, mean, I mean, I know it's like a lot of critics are saying that, but mm-hmm. it seems like courageous for you to be able to put that in there and say, as a filmmaker, I'm a I'm gonna put truth to the script. Uh, well, one, thank you very much. I mean, you know, the, you know, the situation with me is uh, in each in each situation each situation I've ever done it. It's just been to the truth of the characters, and here it's also the truth of the characters and the truth of the time period. You know, there's film criticism and there's social criticism. And the people who have said, uh, uh, who have complained about my use of that, are been social critics. And I have to say, there's not one iota of social criticism that has ever been leveled my way that has changed one word of any other script I've, I've written or, or 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 any scenario I've ever done. I, it's not my it's my job to ignore them and to not pay attention to them because I believe in what I'm doing wholeheartedly and passionately, and it's my job to just get on with it. Yeah. Well, I love you as a filmmaker. Keep on doing it. I keep on watching, man. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. So, my fellow comrades in creativity, no matter where you stand on the issue of Tarantino the Provocateur, at some level, I think we can all respect that sentiment. Stay past the credits for a fun deleted scene, as well as a special announcement about the upcoming shows. Radio Film School is a production of Dear Doer FM. This episode was written and produced by me. Chris Hustledge is our show co-producer. Except for the obvious movie clips, music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes. Radio Film School is part of the Podcastica Network. Think of it as an any label of podcasts, most of which about popular TV shows and pop culture. Just go to podcastica.com and check out a whole cornucopia of podcasty goodness. We're supported in part by Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is the storytelling process Still Motion has used to go from a small wedding video and photography studio out of Canada to a world-renowned commercial film and production company that has shot the Super Bowl and has won five Emmys. It really is the way they tell stories that has propelled them to international acclaim in such a relatively short time. And now they're taking their process to the world. Go to learnstory.org and use the offer code RADIO to save $47 off lifetime access. They also have a new course called How to Conduct Remarkable Interviews. If you sign up for that class and use the offer code INTERVIEW, and you're one of the first 50 people to do so, you'll get the course for only $99. That's nearly a third off. We thank Muse Storytelling for their support. You can follow me on Twitter at FM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. Over the next few weeks, we're going to have some special episodes with a slight format change. I'm going to be doing some traveling in Europe, and so while away, we'll have some short ends episodes as those are quicker to edit, and I can get a few done and scheduled before I leave. The episodes will be related to film and technology in honor of the upcoming NAB show. You won't want to miss them. I'm also going to have some one-on-one uncut interviews. One with RB, CEO of Stage 32, who you heard in this episode, and the other with Lauren Harntunian. 
She's the Dean of Education for YouTube celebrity Freddie Wong's Rocket Jump Film School. Both interviews are packed with inspirational goodness. In May, we'll start gearing up for the season finale of the show, where we'll finally answer the question, will I actually finish Mix in America and what will I have learned along the way? Lots of good stuff for coming your way. So please spread the word, tell your friends, and go rate and review us on iTunes. Until next week, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Adieu. So, you know, it's all perspective, man. Like, uh, like recently I was, I was just talking about a hateful eight and I despised it. Oh, wow. You despise. <laughs> Those are strong words. I just, I didn't like it. I'm a huge Tarantino fan. And I just felt that Jennifer Jason Lee's was amazing. I thought Sam Jackson just came out and did Sam Jackson. Uh, I thought, uh, Kurt Russell was wonderful and all the acting was great. The dialogue was fine. What was missing for you? Um, I think he just drank too much Tarantino juice. Uh, you know, Tarantino drank too much Tarantino juice. He thought that he can throw up a play, a two an hour and 40 minute play, and people were just going to sit there and watch it because he's Tarantino. And it's it's it just gets a little much. The dialogue is wonderful, but two hours and 40 minutes of it, it's a bit much, Quentin. <laughs> and so, that was the short version, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. God knows what the long version is. It's probably three hours. So do you see what I'm saying? Like when you have the balls to say, I'm going to just let you listen to my amazing dialogue for three hours. That's great. But, you know, like I love Django. I love Inglorious Bastards. I mean, like he's had a run of insanely great Kill Bills. I love both Kill Bills. You know, I'm a big, big fan of Tarantino. But this time, you know, and he made all the hoopla, the whole 70 millimeter film thing. I'm like, oh, I, I drank that Kool-Aid. I'm like, yeah, 70 millimeter, it's back. Film is coming. We're doing it. And and I'm like, well, why would you shoot 70 millimeter if you're in a freaking cabin? Like <laughs> I like for what, 85 percent of the movies in a cabin. You know, it's like if you're going to shoot like I would have liked to see Django in 70 millimeter. I would have liked to see an inglorious bastards in 70 millimeter. You know what I mean? But. You know, you got a couple of wonderful picturesque shots that they show in the trailers and then you're inside of inside of a room for. <laughs> so, like, I didn't get that part of it. But again, it's opinion. It's opinion. Uh, but apparently it's a, a popular opinion because it did nothing in the box office. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> it didn't do too hot. No, it didn't.